Good morning, church. All right, I have the honor and privilege of finishing this series in Ecclesiastes as Pastor Josh is finishing his working vacation. So our hopes, not hopes, but our prayers and thoughts are with him and his family, and we're just wishing him a great time of rest. Amen? So we're going to jump right into it. Have you ever thought that you were going to die? All the time. Oh, wow. You know, we have a great prayer group, Scott, that meets weekly. No, I'm kidding. No, but have you ever had this biological, physiological feeling that death is upon you and you need to do something about it? Last year, uh, my wife and I, we uh, were in Kenya and we had just finished a a week-long camp with the boys. And so my wife does this awesome thing to say thank you and to talk about all the awesome things God has done and to provide a time of rest for all those on the trip. She plans a safari out to Masai Mara. And so if you know anything about safaris or Africa, when you think of safari, like Lion King being out in the African bush, it's all kind of depicted from this vision of Masai Mara. And so that's where we're going. It's where the great uh, uh, migration takes place. It's just this beautiful place in the world. And so uh, the first thing you should know about safari, especially in Kenya, is that when you're in the main city of Nairobi, You get on the highway and you drive for about four hours through uh, the African wilderness. And then you get off of that highway after you've been on there for four hours. Then you get on a dirt road for about another five hours. Okay, then you get on another dirt road for about another hour. And so by the time you get there, you just have this overwhelming feeling of anything that could help me, save me, come and get me is not coming. So we better not get sick. You better not trip and fall because help is not coming. And so you just kind of have to submit to this idea that we are literally out in the middle of nowhere in the African bush in Kenya. And so the first night we go out, we see some elephants, we see about 30 lions, just incredible seeing God's creation. And so we start heading back to the lodge and our driver, Francois, who um, I still, um, God's still working with me because I still don't like him very much. You'll understand why in a minute. Um, he, he looks back, up, back at us and says, uh, so tomorrow morning, uh, do you want to go out in the morning and uh, see a couple things and then go back and have lunch? And, uh, or do you want to drive all day to go to the river? And so for me, he had me at lunch, right? Like I was like, yeah, like lunch, uh, absolutely. Hang out by the lodge. Like you've seen one elephant. I mean, come on, you've seen them all, right? Okay. And so everyone in a resounding at the same time said river. And so I pretended I was like, yeah, river. Like, oh man. So we're going to be in the car for like eight hours driving through Masai Mara. So we gear out, we gear up and we begin to head out on this voyage. And so very quickly, we begin to realize that this trip is not going so well. And so what our driver did was, anytime he saw a big pothole or a watering hole, um, instead of driving around it, he would just kind of say this little prayer thing that he would do and just punch it. And we would go through the mud and mud would get everywhere and we would scream and it was fun. And he was just doing this over and over again on this journey. To the point where we were talking that I noticed that he stopped and we were looking out at this huge gaping ravine full of water. And I can kind of see him thinking, I can kind of see the wheels turning in his head. And he didn't think very long before he just punched it. 
and we're going down this hill. Guys, we get about halfway into this water before the tires give out and we realize that we're stuck in the African bush. And so we're sitting there, mind you, the van has no roof. And so that's when my, my friend looked at me and he says, you know, we're basically kind of sitting in a lunchbox. Um, I asked Francois, I said, hey, can we get out? And he's like, no. I was like, why not? He's like, we are in lion territory. I'm like, oh, come on, dude, Francois. And so we're sitting there, uh, one van, uh, here's our radio call, literally hooks up, uh, rips our bumper off and keeps driving. We sit there for another two hours, and this huge Range Rover pulls up. I swear this guy was like the Sultan of Brunei. I mean, he was just like sitting like, my friends, like, what do you need? And we're like, we need to get out. And so he hooked our, our rope up and just pulled us out, and we're all cheering. And so by this point, I'm thinking, most assuredly, everyone will want to go back to the lodge for lunch to sit by the pool, right? So I, I turn around, and Francois is like, do you want to go back? Or do you want to go to the river? And everyone's like, the river! And I'm like, Francois, stop saying it like that. <laughs> and so we head out to this river. And on our way, we stop by this tree to have some lunch. And so everyone asks, you know, we've been in this car all day. We're just tired. We want to get out. We're all muddy. We're just, it's just dirty. So they ask, can we get out um, and have our lunch outside? And Francois literally goes, yeah, sure. Like, Francois, is that a good idea? Should we be out, like, outside eating? So we all get outside. We have our lunch. And I'm kind of, I'm eating like a deer, right? I'm eating like, I'm like. <laughs> and I can see about a quarter of a mile down this hill is this massive baboon. The biggest baboon I have ever seen. And I've seen a lot of baboons, unfortunately. And this baboon was just massive, and he's just kind of just walking towards us, okay? And so I'm like, hey guys, I just want to alert everyone on the trip. Um, there's a really, really big baboon over there. He obviously smells the food. He's coming towards us. Hey, Francois, is that okay? He's like, oh, he's just a baboon. It's okay. I'm like, all right. So I go around the other side of the van, and I can see through the windows of the van. Um, I can see my wife and my friend Adam, and they're talking. And this wasp comes over and starts harassing them. Now, mind you, this is not like a normal wasp that we would see here. This is an African wasp, okay? So it's like the size of me, like flying on the top of them. And so they start screaming and flailing and laughing. And as I'm looking through the window, the moment they got distracted, that baboon takes off. And it just takes off into a dead sprint towards all of us. So I run over to the other side of the van and guys, when I tell you, when you see a massive beast coming at you full force, full speed, just, ah, 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 with massive fangs, everything in my body, my physiology was like yelling at me like an alarm system, live, 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 like this animalistic nature took over and everything was just pushing me, you gotta move, you gotta move, you gotta live. So I jumped in front of the baboon and I was like, eat me, but not my wife. <laughs> just kidding, I was the first to run. And I ran back over here to the other side of the van. I jumped in the van. I hear something behind me. I thought it was my friend. I turned around. I'm like, are you okay? It's the baboon. He has jumped in the van with me. And he's like, yeah. So I jump out of the, the van. Now the baboon is chasing all of us around this van. I'm yelling at Francois. Francois, shoot the baboon. Shoot the baboon. Shoot the baboon. Francois takes out a stick and throws it at the baboon. Literally, the baboon goes like this. And, and keeps chasing us. He goes back into the car, pulls out some antifreeze. This is the only thing we had left. 
I know it's graphic and I'm sorry animal lovers, but he starts spraying the baboon with antifreeze. And for some reason, this is like kryptonite to monkeys, I don't understand. And so he basically kind of runs off like screaming. And so when I tell you that we all thought we were gonna die, we all thought we were going to die. Like I, that was it. We were not thinking about anything else but live, live, live because we're about to get eaten. In this text that Ecclesiastes is finishing with in, in chapter 12 that the writer writes about is this whole idea of living with urgency because you're going to die. There's, there's bad news, I'm sorry to tell you. I'm dying, but so are you. We're dying. And so what, what Ecclesiastes 12 calls us to and invites us to is a new perspective of urgency, of action, of living life to the fullest because we're not going to be able to always do this. The writer uh, uh, articulates this so well. And you can tell that he was, he was raised well because he describes the aging process in a graceful and respectful way. He's not insulting. He does not um, minimize it. Um, but rather, he, he does it in a poetic way so that we can get a mental image of what it's like to get older. The Bible says, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark, a reference to fading capacity for joy in old age. Oh, uh, and the clouds return after the rain, a way to describe being sad all the time because of the problems of old age. When the keepers of the house tremble, a reference to arm and leg strength fading away. And the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim, when your teeth begin to fall out and your eyesight begins to go. When the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades to reduced access to the world around you and your hearing begins to subside. When people rise up at the sound of birds, talking about when you have trouble sleeping and you wake up often in old age. But all their songs grow faint when people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets. You are constantly troubled with fear. And I thought this one was so beautiful. It says, when the almond tree blossoms. Anyone know what he means there? It's talking about when, when your hair begins to turn white. And the grasshopper drags itself along and desire is no longer stirred. So the writer Kohelet is trying to get us to, to feel it. He's trying to get us to really understand that death is coming. And the aging process can be tough and painful and heartbreaking. And so I believe that this text eloquently whispers, live, live, live. I'm going to speak to our young people for a moment. And then I'm going to invite um, those of us in the evening phase of our life into this conversation as well. And then we're going to both look and see what God is calling us to do as a church with this text. The writer begins his plea to young people to live life to the fullest before it's too late 
by first talking about the heart. Chapter 11, 9 says, When you are young, be happy while you are young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see, but know that all these things God will bring in to judgment. How interesting that he uses the analogy of heart before describing impending death. In Augustine's Confessions, he writes, You have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Unfortunately, in today's culture, the language of heart has been hijacked. Now when we think of thinking with your heart and following your heart and, oh, my heart told me to do this, we naturally get images of, of cheapness, of frivolousness. Um, I think of cheap connections. I think of cheap affections, uh, fleeting passions, and uh, shallow relationships, right? Unfortunately, uh, this is not what the Bible meant when it talks about heart, our center, our cardia. Instead, the Bible describes the heart as the epicenter of our most fundamental longings, a visceral and subconscious orientation to the world. So what Augustine is describing here is a great desire for fulfillment and for wholeness. In James K.A. Smith's books, You Are What You Love, he writes, the center of gravity of the human person is located not in the intellect, but in the heart. Why? Because the heart is the existential chamber of our love, and it is our loves that orient us towards some ultimate end or vision. It's not just that I know some end or believe in some vision. More than that, I long for some end. I want something. And I want it ultimately. It is my desires that define me. In short, you are what you love. Isn't that, isn't that cool? That whatever your heart is pointed at, whatever uh, your heart is centered on, is essentially the deepest parts of you. So young people, question. What is the status of your heart this morning? Is it what the Apostle Paul prayed for the Ephesians? That the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Are you following it? And is it leading you to joy? Or is your heart heavy laden, closed, and perhaps even despairing? You say, man, I don't even know when the last time I followed my heart for anything. The writer wants us to understand that central to living a life that matters is to live a life where you are following the things that God has put on your heart because life is short and you have an opportunity to live fully alive right now, right here where you are. This is getting harder and harder to do in our culture. Living from our hearts, following our hearts, is getting harder and harder to do. It's a wonder anyone can do it anymore. I believe that there is a slow movement of cynicism happening in our churches, along with disenchantment and, frankly, boredom. Meaning we have gotten so smart 
we know so much that we don't need our hearts anymore. I say let the phones be smart and let us look to be people that are wise, compassionate, and courageous. I also believe that a collectivistic ideology of sameness and mediocrity is infecting our Christian culture. Just be like everyone else. Don't stand out. Just, just do what the group does. Read your Bible, keep your head down, don't upset anyone. Just, just keep, stay below the radar. This ideology is robbing young people of their hearts. Disproportionately young men, by the way, who are finding themselves lost and bored without anything to strive for, anything to set their hearts towards other than video games. That's, that's where they can get th their, their war, their battle out, their fight out, their energy. Surely we can do better as a Christian community than to simply offer them video games. Surely there must be something else for them to do. Can you imagine looking at, out at a young classroom in which sat young Mother Teresa, C.S. Lewis, Martin Luther King Jr. and saying, hey guys, just keep your head down. Just read your Bible. You don't need to go there and you don't need to help those people suffering from AIDS. Just pray for them. No reason to write novels, young Clive, and offer a new perspective. There's nothing new under the sun. No reason to stand up for the oppressed and fight for justice. Don't make trouble where there isn't any. Hey church, Jesus never ever suggested that we be the same. He said his greatest hope for the church was oneness, not sameness. Those are two completely different things. Oneness is where we can all gather with our unique differences, our gifts, our talents, our perspectives, the way that we approach life, our different backgrounds, and we can all be respectful and celebrate each other under this beautiful banner called the church. It was never supposed to be where we all think the same, vote the same, look the same, talk the same, eat the same. That was not the heart of God. It was not sameness. It was oneness. And I have to tell you, church, personally, this really makes me upset. Because young people are going out to school every single day not knowing how awesome they are, how loved they are, and about their God-given greatness that each one of them possess. Local pastor Irvin McManus once said, be careful of embracing the type of spirituality that has a deep disdain for ambition and hides apathy behind the language of simplicity. If you want to live a simple life, that's a beautiful thing. If you want to use it as an excuse to live beneath your God-given capacity, that is negligence. Friends, please, please, let us never become so cynical, so insecure, so resentful that we stop reminding young people that they have a God-given purpose and a calling from Almighty God. Amen? Amen? You say, oh, Justin, man, that's just Joel Osteen stuff. I know where you're going with that. That's just prosperity stuff, feel-good stuff. To which I would say, no. That's what Ecclesiastes 1 through 10 was about. How seeking after the things of this world are ultimately hevel, are ultimately meaningless. Rather, what this text is, is challenging us to do is to live with our hearts fully open, not a heart fully closed. 
and to reorient it towards the thing that truly matters. And when we do that, guess what? Everything matters. That our hearts ultimately want to be oriented back towards the Creator. Young people need to hear that they have a calling and a purpose now more than any time in history. Since 1999, suicide as a whole has increased 30%. Men die from suicide four times more than women. But since 1999, suicide in young women has increased 50%. 20% of teens say that they are struggling with depression. Opioid use is skyrocketing to the point that 42% of millennials admit that they know someone who is struggling with an opioid addiction. Just last year, I had to bury a long-term friend and teammate um, who died of a heroin overdose. More than any other time in history, we need to grab our young people and say, you are loved. You matter. You have a purpose. There is a plan for your life and there is a great hope for your life. You are exactly what God had in mind when God made you. So step out. Do that thing that's in your heart. Follow it. And I promise you the end result of the works will be pure joy. So young people, where is your heart truly leading you? I love it. That the text literally says, follow the ways of your heart. I love it. It's so cool. What is it that makes you excited? That when you think uh, or do this thing, time stops and you feel energized and plugged in to something bigger than yourself. Whatever that is, right now from this platform, I am giving you permission to go after that thing. Genesis 49, 27 says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours his prey. In the evening, he divides the plunder. Find something and throw your whole self into it. Devour it. And if it turns out not to be the thing, I promise you it will lead to the thing. Uh, my coach used to just say, Justin, grab a hold of it. Get after it. Grab the ball. Because if you don't devour when you're young, you will have nothing to divide when you're old. I'll say that again. If you don't devour when you're young, you won't have anything to divide when you're old. I think about a family member I just heard yesterday talking on the phone to my mom, um, who's in the evening stage of her life, who is being evicted from uh, in her apartment in her late 70s. And it's like, man, and just, just a trail of, of missteps and, and bad opportunities and bad decisions um, have, have left her in a situation where there's nothing to divide. You might be wondering, what do I do? And I'll tell you, just do something. Because there is an old person inside of you that is depending on you to get moving. That is depending on you to make brave decisions that is depending on you to devour something, that is depending on you to throw your whole life at something and seek God with all that you have. You might be someone who likes to consume information and share it with someone, you're a teacher. So I challenge you, man, find someone to teach. Say, teach what? I don't know, teach anything. 
read about it and teach someone something. You might be someone who, when you walk into a room, man, you can just feel people. You have the spiritual gift of empathy. You know who had a bad drive on the way into work. You know who's upset. You know who's angry. You know whose marriage is struggling. You just have the gift of empathy. You can just feel people as if it was your own. So what would it look like to sit with someone and just listen to their story and, and pray to God that he would give you the right words to encourage them? You may be someone who walks into a restaurant and you immediately see everything that's wrong. You see why the line's too long. You look at the menu and see how inefficient it is. Man, you see like one, two, three things. If they did this, their profits would skyrocket. And people have written you off your whole life as just being negative. But the reality is that you have a God-given anointing to bring order to things. Maybe you're someone who can look at the devastation and suffering in the world and you know that beauty inspires. And so you like to paint and you like to create and you like to offer beauty to people to change their emotional and spiritual states. You're an artist. If that's you, man, to paint something, draw something, create and create and create. Just do something. Because I promise you, a heart oriented towards the things of God will produce a joy in you that will set the world on fire. And you will make an impact for the kingdom of God. And so I know I've been talking to our young folks for a little bit. So I'm going to switch and kind of address those of us who are in the evening stages of our life. Um, now, having said that, uh, I understand that there, there are some biological implications that make some of us more likely to go home and be with the Lord sooner than others, okay? But at the same time, I believe that age is a mindset. What do you mean? I say, man, well, I've talked to young people who are my age and younger, and you would think that you were talking to someone who's 75 years old. What do I mean? Well, for one, they know everything. They're not curious about anything. They don't want to learn anything else. Their mind is made up about the world. Their mind up is made about people. They, they're done. They're done. Live. They're dead. They just haven't made it official yet. They're dead. <laughs> but at the same time, I've talked to people in the evening stage of their life, and you swear you're talking to a 21-year-old that are full of life, full of adventures, still taking risks. They're generous. They're full of energy. They like to laugh. They like to try new things. They like to learn. It's, it's possible. There's an old story I like um, with Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson decide to go on a camping trip. After dinner and a bottle of wine, they lay down for the night and go to sleep. Some hours later, Holmes awoke and nudged his faithful friend. Watson, look up at the sky and tell me what you see. Watson replied, I see millions of stars. Holmes said, what does that tell you? Watson pondered for a moment. Astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three. Theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and that we are small and insignificant. Meteorologically, I can, I can suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. What does it tell you, Holmes? Holmes was silent for a moment, then spoke, Watson, you idiot. Someone has stolen our tent. <laughs> and so it's perspective, right? It's perspective. It's perspective, man. We get to choose what we want to see. 
And so I believe that age is a mindset. Say easy for you to say, Justin, I'm old, I'm tired. Where could I possibly follow my heart to? And I would refer you over to Chris Plummer, who won his first Oscar at 82. Ben Franklin signed the Declaration of Independence at age 70. Nelson Mandela was elected president at age 75. Colonel Sanders started KFC at age 65. Dorothy Hirsch completed a voyage to the North Pole at age 89. And the list goes on and on and on. Guys, just because you might be in the evening stage biologically does not mean that you can't be in the morning stage spiritually. That there's still an awesome work to be done. My grandfather, in the evening stage of his life, uh, suffered greatly from dementia to the point where we had to move him from Culver City out to, to Chino, where we were, and get him in an assisted living facility. And so when he got there, uh, it was kind of a minute-to-minute thing. And so what my mom did that was so cool is she took these post-it notes, and she would put it on pictures and put different books around his room. And, she, and he would walk over to a post-it note and read it. And I would say, hey, Dad, you remember when you fought in the Korean War and how proud you were? And he'd go over to a different door and he'd read it and said, hey, Dad, you remember when you got your, your PhD from USC and how, how much that, that energy that took, you took the train all the way out from Cincinnati to start a new life out here. And I'd watch him and you could see that when he would read these things, a bit of humanity would just return to him. He felt more secure in himself, even if it was just for a moment. And so if you are in the evening stage of your life here, if you'd allow me, I'd like to remind you of a few things. The first is, you are a rich and valuable resource in our church. I don't want to go to a church full of young people. That's boring, okay? If you have ever felt marginalized, undermined, or unheard because of your age, I want you to know that that is not our heart here. We love you. And please hear me. We desperately need your wisdom and guidance in this season of our church. Desperately. I need it. My students need it. Our community groups need it. I can't tell you how many times I think to myself during the week, man, I wish someone would have just sat down and just talked to me about life, about how to handle money, about how to handle relationships, how to make good decisions. I I wish someone would have just spent more time doing that stuff with me. And so if you're in that phase of your life, can I invite you to consider sharing the wisdom that you have? Can I invite you to consider looking at yourself as a valuable resource in this church because you are? Can I invite you to, to take a step out and say, man, where is my heart leading me? When's the last time you asked yourself that question? What's the thing on my heart? Where is it taking me? Where, where am I oriented towards? Because we have such a high need for you in this place. Please share your wisdom. Please consider new ways on how to do that and to do it more and to find great joy in doing that. And so whether you are in the morning stage of your life or the evening stage of your life, Ecclesiastes offers us one final call to summarize this whole book. Verse 12, 11 says, 
The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. A goad is basically a sharp stick used to move cattle. And so they don't, I don't think they do it in America, but in the third world, it's pretty, pretty common. And so basically there'll be a sharp stick and the shepherd, he'll, he'll just whack a cow to get back in line. And when you see it, it kind of jars you because you're like, oh, the poor cow. But then you realize that if he doesn't do that, that cow is going out in the middle of the street and it's going to get hit. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes likens wisdom to that stick. It's kind of a swift jab to, to wake us up and reorient us back towards what really matters. Ultimately, Jesus Christ. In verse 13, the Bible says, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Architect Frank Lloyd Wright said, We create our spaces, and then our spaces create us. Have you created space where Jesus Christ can be the center of your heart? Where your fundamental longings, the things you want and then the things you really, really, really want, are they all centered around Jesus? Are they pointed towards Jesus? Is your life oriented towards Jesus? J.A. Smith said, to be human is to be for something, directed towards something, oriented towards something. To be human is to be on the move, pursuing after something. I want to suggest to us that that something is Jesus Christ. That because Jesus took our sin on his back, ending our disconnection from our creator, that through him we can live lives where we remember God and fear God in all we do, where we live our lives with our hearts firmly fastened on Jesus, a life where everything matters. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you, God, that you're a God who celebrates the things that you put on our hearts. And so, Lord, I pray, God, for any hearts in this room that were closed, that you would open them to a brand new life. God, we know that life is so fleeting. It's vapor. It's here one moment, and it's gone. And aging can be tough. So with the years that we have, may we make the most out of them by putting you at the center of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.